Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hey, Santa, you could win in APCO's Cash for Chrissy competition. That's right, APCO Joe. There's 1K to brighten your day. And 1K to give away to a mate for Christmas. APCO's Cash for Chrissy on now at APCO. <laughs> How would you like to ramp up your club's game day atmosphere? Big Screen Video is giving 10 lucky sports clubs the chance to win a $10,000 grant towards their own digital scoreboard. Register now at iCanWin.com.au slash BSV. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. It's 9.04 and welcome to SCNZ Mornings with Stephen McIver in for Smithy for the next couple of days as he's on ICC Women's Cricket World Cup duty which starts Friday with New Zealand against the Windies from uh, Bay Oval which will be live and we'll have live ball by ball here on SCNZ with every uh, New Zealand game which is pretty cool it's, and it's look it's hard not to get excited about the Ferns after yesterday's stunning run chase in beating the world's number one teams at Australia at Lincoln and we'll talk to Sophie Devine just after 10 this morning Morning. And any thoughts you may have on New Zealand chances of winning the cup on home soil? 0800 150 811 or text on the Temper Bed Post text line 8833. Coming shortly, the man that broke a world champion's 555 game winning streak. That's right, 1986 world squash champion Ross Norman. Also before 10, former TV3 sports reporter Michelle Pickles reflects on the career of Dame Valerie Adams, who, as she said, retired the size 14s yesterday and called time on her wonderful career. Also, Val's first coach, Kirsten Hellier, will talk to us after 11 this morning. And no day would be the same without the panel this morning. Two guys that love their sport, Mark Watson and Stuff's Mark Hinton. So it is a busy little morning. So we begin with the knowledge that Paul Cole is today officially the world number one in men's squash. He's through to the semi-finals of the Windy City Open in Chicago, where he'll face former world champ Tarek Momin. After yesterday's quarter-final win, he was asked about becoming world number one. Sounds bloody good, doesn't it? Um, yeah, it's a dream come true, man. Um, I can't put into words um, what, what it feels like to me, so it's going to be a, a great day. Um, I can't wait to, to wake up, but um, you know, I've got a job to do tomorrow, so We'll enjoy it as a team tomorrow um, and then, you know, quickly focus uh, to the match tomorrow night. It's a big deal for squash in this country, as was Ross Norman in 1986 when he beat the seemingly unbeatable Jahinga Khan in the final of the World Championship in Toulouse, France. Uh, Khan hadn't been beaten in 555 games and five and a half years. And Ross joins us now on SENZ Mornings. And, mate, when you look back on that win, did the scale of it sink in straight away? 
That would be a yes and no answer. Um, yes, because, um, you know, I've been chasing him for so long um, and been in the final with him in so many world sort of top world tournaments uh, so many times that when I did beat him, I, I did realise, but I just didn't realise the, the publicity that would actually follow that win. Yeah, well, what surprises me, you had a, a, a tremendous 1986. You went on a, a myriad of tournaments, but couldn't crack the, the number one spot. Why is that? Was it were the, the way they did the rankings different then? No, 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 it was the same. Um, it was actually based on the most consistent player and uh, the, for the tournaments that Jahangir played. Um, he had won most of them, uh, with obviously with the exception of the World Open. So I played him in probably four or five finals that year. Uh, he beat me every time. Um, so, yeah, the number one spot goes to the most consistent player. D- does it ever rankle you? Uh, you know what? Um, it does, doesn't it? it <laughs> Even after all these years, it does. <laughs> it would have been nice to be, um, to be number one in the world. Um, I, I enjoyed being world champion because when you're world champion, you're world champion for 12 months um, until the next World Open is played. Um, but being world number one, that could that could go for longer than 12 months, but it also could be in the space of just two months. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I was fascinated with when I was just uh, doing some research on you was that uh, previously, it was well, three years earlier, you had a parachute a- accident and, and completely nobbled your knee, but that moment that time was impetus to go on and win this world championship absolutely i've been asked that question many times you know would i have won the world open had i not had that parachute accident and and my honest gut feeling answer would be probably not um it was a massive wake-up call lying in hospital for four or five months uh and then another four or five months on top of that for rehabilitation um that was a sort of shock to the system, and, and that is what drove me, really, to, um, uh, to become world champion three years later. When you look at world squash now, is it any different? Is it any quicker? Has the style of the way it's played changed? Yeah, I believe it has. Um, I mean, my last few years of playing pro squash, they actually lowered the 10 to 2 inches, which made the court... Um, a, a, a lot bigger mm-hmm. um, and then with the onslaught of sort of all the Egyptian players they've brought a sort of real flavour to the game now um, a real sort of uh, it, it's a shot maker game uh, 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 today and uh, you know they've they've um, they've made it exciting uh, uh, again What is it though why Egyptians could be any other country but why Egypt I don't know, really. When In my time, it was all the Pakistanis uh, that, were, that were the top. When I first turned pro, um, you had the Australian at number one and then the Pakistanis at two, three, four, five, and six. So it's, I don't know. It's just a, a sort of changeover. I think it's the sheer numbers as well. They've got thousands, tens of thousands of juniors coming through. So it's kind of a numbers game. But, oh, they're just, you know, some, some countries are just um, made to play uh, certain sports. Let's talk about Paul Cole. Uh, today, he's officially world number one, and that's a pretty incredible achievement from a young lad from Greymouth who's been grafting along. But what do you see in him? Okay, um, I see consistency. What the number one ranking uh, gives you is it doesn't necessarily mean you're the best player in the world, but what it does is it says, it says that you are the most consistent player for the last 12 months. Um, I believe Paul is the best player in the world as well uh, at the moment. If a World Open was to be played, for example, tomorrow, my money would go on Paul to win it. Um, he's got there through, I believe, a, a real New Zealand Kiwi attitude of 
of um, you know strength, speed, always working on his game. He prides himself on his fitness, determination, um, developing his skills, uh, and all those sort of things poses real problems to his opponents when he goes on court. I was watching his quarterfinal yesterday at the Windy City Open in Chicago, and I was. And I, I'll be blunt with you, I haven't watched a lot of sport, but I, I thought I'd take the time out. I've, I know his parents really well. And I, I watched the way he played, and he almost glides around the course, a uh, court, excuse yeah. me. Yeah, he does. His movement is superb. It's probably, um, he has the best movement uh, of any squash player in the world at the moment. Um, he, he, he really does. Um, I mean, he, he's not a sort of... He, uh, 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 he's not built lightly, um, and therefore he does have to use a fair bit of energy to, to move around. But uh, he really does economise when he moves around. No, he's, he's just—it it, is poetry in motion. You're watching him move around the squash court. Yeah, I thought that win yesterday was almost a statement. He knew he was becoming number one, and he—he he didn't f- look at any time phased. And I think confidence in a sports person is huge nowadays. Oh, absolutely. Um, Paul is a very confident guy, and he should be too. He's worked hard on his game. Um, he's, he's got a lot in the, you know, a lot of skills in the bank, if you like, and, and, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's really using them these days. Um, but that just shows you his consistency and why he should be number one in the world at the moment. How does he maintain that, though? How do you maintain that number one status? Hard work. <laughs> There's no other thing for it. Um, time, hard work, and, um, just, honing his skills, all the skills you need to be a top sportsman, um, and just just constantly, 24-7, working on them. I was talking to some workmates yesterday, and we were trying to figure it out, and you will, you will know the answer to this question. Do you feel that hand-eye coordination is, is as necessary as a, a Formula One driver and their reaction speeds? I've never driven a Formula One car, but, um, I, you know... I, I, I would think so. Um, I think at the top of um, almost all sports, um, your hand-eye coordination has to be um, uh, spot on. And uh, it, it's kind of a diff- slightly different skill set, but, um, you know, you, you, you've got to have that. That's a prerequisite before you become good at anything. How did you improve your hand-eye? Because I was just looking at the, the, the narrowest of margins where the, where the ball is, you know, right up against the wall, and then next minute it's whipping across court and it's down in a, in a corner. How do you work on those things? Oh, absolutely. It's just, it, it is just practice. It's just practice, 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 um, and, and until you get it right. And even when you practice and spend all those hours, uh, on the practice court, it doesn't necessarily translate to being able to do that in a match on court. But the best guys do manage to translate it, and uh, Paul happens to be one of them. Do you think he wins a world championship somewhere along the way? I hope so. Um, as I said before, um, being number one doesn't necessarily mean you're the best player in the world, but I believe he is today. And if a World Open was held next week, my money would be on Paul, definitely. What do you think the state of squash is now in this country and around the world? Um, I don't think it, it, it sort of, um, has got to the sort of heady days of the seventies and eighties. Um, you know, certainly in the eighties when I was playing, um, that, you know, you could not, you simply just could not seem to book a squash court. Everyone was playing the game. Um, but certainly in terms of television, um, um, you know, televising the, the, the matches mm. around the world, um, making the glass court look more attractive. Um, the players, certainly the Egyptians, have made the game more attractive to watch. Um, yeah, it's, 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 
it could be, you know, any sport could be in better shape, but um, I think squash is in pretty good shape at the moment. And with the world teams coming very soon, it's going to probably push it even better, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, certainly in, in, in New Zealand, yeah. Um, you know, Paul has, um, like I guess in the days of when Susan and I were playing, um, you know, um, we sort of uh, brought the, the, the sport to the sort of front pages. Um, and, and Paul is doing that now. Um, along with Joel, yeah. I mean, you know, we've got two top Kiwis here and uh, they're doing so well on the international circuit. What's Ross Norman doing now? <laughs> on holiday at the moment. <laughs> sitting, <laughs> sitting in Greyland. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, no. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm based back in the UK. Um, I'm sort of spending more and more time back here every year, and which I thoroughly enjoy. And um, I'd like to even spend more time. But, uh, yeah, look, I just look after um, uh, property back there, um, you know, manage and, uh, uh, and that keeps me busy, uh, but still gives me enough time to get out on the golf course and tennis course. <laughs> what are you hitting off at the moment? Oh, no, it's not good. It's not pretty. It's about, about 16, so uh, I'm, I'm happy with that. Good social handicap. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a great social handicap. Ross, a real treat talking to you. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on Paul Cole and uh, just giving us, giving us your time. Thank you, Steve. Cheers. Ross Norman joining us on SNZ Mornings with Stephen McIver and for Smithy for the next couple of days. It's 9.16. Interesting thoughts from him. And uh, Paul Cole plays that semi-final of the Windy City Open against Tarek Momin. Uh, he, they played together in the 2019-2020 World Championship final, which Momin won. He's currently ranked number four. He's the fourth seed. Paul Cole is the second seed. Uh, and you talk about Egyptians, about the men's and women's. Six of the eight semi-finalists are all Egyptian. The other men's semi-final is Marwan El Shobagi, uh, the number six seed up against Yusuf Ibrahim. And the women's, we mustn't forget Joelle Kings in that women's semi-final of the Windy City Open. She's ranked number five up against Nuran Goha. Uh, and the number one seed is uh, Nua El Sherbini. Uh, she's up against Hani El Hamami. Now, I think Hani El Hamami is the wife of Mamak Taran, Tarek Momin. So uh, that is all going down uh, today, our time, a little bit later on, because I thought when I was watching... Uh, Paul, yesterday was around 4 o'clock in the afternoon live on Sky Sports. So there's a lot to look forward to. And, uh, wow, we've got a world number one. How important is it to you, by the way? Uh, is it a big deal for you at home listening uh, that we have a world squash number one? I certainly remember the days of Ross Norman and uh, Dame Susan DeVoy, which wasn't a dame then. I'd love to, love to know. Get on the Tempered Bedpost text line and double eight double three, or give us a call 0800 150811. That's 0800 Well, Jared's already fired up. Uh, do, I th- do I think the White Ferns can win the World Cup? Well, not sure. They should make semis. We'll have to play out their skins. Hang on, let me just open that up a little bit. Uh, let me have a look. Oh, there we go. Need to embrace being at home, which will help, like Smithy's team of 92. Well, you're probably right. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, Jared. Listen after 10 o'clock. Sophie Devine will give you a better understanding than I will ever give you about how they will go in this ICC Women's Cricket World Cup starting Friday at Bay Oval as they take on uh, the West Indies. Her thoughts about the West Indies, I had a had chat to her last night, are... Uh, quite interesting so you'll be quite surprised about that one and the other thing I want you to text in on the Temper Bed Toast tech line on double eight double three is what do you think of the Black Caps performance now over the summer you know they pumped they pumped the Proteas in the first test and then go and lose this one what is it 198 runs Logan 198 runs so you know no, and certainly this is not the time to bring out the kicking bag right and of course you lose to Bangladesh and then you go and pump them again so it's been uh, 
Well, you could say it's been a summer of two halves in the test arena. There's a great one. Summer of two halves. A summer of two halves. How about that? Double eight double three. the Temper Bed Post text line. Uh, get on the line. And in fact, there's a call coming in right now. Let's just quickly double check that one. And I'll just give some other thoughts about maybe what you would like to talk about today. Of course, uh, Dame Valerie Adams, I'd love to know what you think her impact on sport has been as well. You know, Two, two gold medals, one silver, one bronze, four world championships, three Commonwealth Games gold medals, the whole nine yards. And uh, it's really interesting to know. So uh, get on the Timber Bedpost text line, uh, text me or give me a call on 0800 150811. That's 0800 150811. Hey, Todd, how are you, mate? Yeah, good, thanks, mate. How are you? Oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. What's on your mind today? No, I was just giving you a call just in regards to Paul Cole. Yep, far up. It's, it's a bloody, yeah, it's a bloody great effort, isn't it? I don't think uh, people probably understand. I'm a squashy myself. I grew up playing um, squash with Paul in my junior days, um, so I know him quite well. But, yeah, I know the squash community is um, really proud of him, actually. Like, it's a, it's a great feat. We've got a quite, quite a proud history um, in squash, but for a while there it's been a bit of a dead zone, so... For someone like Paul to reach sort of world number one is just absolutely amazing. So, uh, where are you calling from? Are you a Greymouth boy? No, no, I, I'm originally from Napier, um, but I live in Auckland now. But um, yeah, we just grew up on the junior circuit together, and um, funnily enough, our dad both played together as well way back. <laughs> is your is your dad as competitive as his father, Mike? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> they sort of uh, the the dad sort of kept the bars running at the junior tournament, which was always good. <laughs> but I tell you what, Michael Cole is one one uh, competitive mofo. I'll tell you that one. So when you play, when you played uh, against Paul, and you know in those junior days, did you see anything, or did you even th- now that you look back and have time to reflect, did you see anything that would suggest he would go to great heights? Oh, definitely. So he was he was sort of about a year or two older than me. Um, so we did play a bit, but we we did a lot of training camps together and that. And he's just sort of he was always sort of one of those guys that I guess is that you know that that top one percent of professional athletes that sort of just has a has a bit of a screw loose and <laughs> he managed to be able to just push himself that extra that extra ten percent every tra- every training session, you know. Do you, do you think he would like you to suggest that he had a screw loose, or do you think you've got to have a screw loose to succeed? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think you probably do. To be honest, like he was always sort of probably that one of the fitter boys, but yeah. the fact that you know one of the fitter boys was the one that was the most knackered at the end of a training session, I think, is a is a you know it's a and that's just a result of all his hard work and now it's paying off and now and you you say you're still a squash you say you're still playing yep 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 definitely definitely, definitely not to that level <laughs> but no i still play the local circuit and things like that so it's been a bit of a shame because obviously with covid and that he hasn't been able to um come back and play nationals and things like that which has been a, a, a real shame to it's always awesome when he we when we see him back on um, New Zealand soil and playing nationals and carving up. Hey, but so tell me, what's what is the local scene like? I mean, you're you're at grassroots level. They always say grassroots is where it starts because Joel King and and Paul are doing their thing globally and doing well. They're both in the semi-finals today of the Windy City Open in Chicago. Do you have have you seen a resurgence in the game at all? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think just like anything, it's. it's it sort of go, comes and goes in waves, I guess. We've got a couple of um, 
couple of young juniors coming up. Um, they're the sort of around their 80 to 90. Well, not young juniors anymore, sorry. Showing my age there. They're um, sort of about 20 now um, that are sort of coming through the ranks. And it's just so hard in New Zealand, especially for like the men um, to to really train and get that get that competitive match play in New Zealand. So Paul, he, in his early days, he made the call to move to the, um, Europe. And I think that, you know, that was a real, real big reason why he's managed to get to where he is. So these new guys coming through have actually just made the move to England themselves. So hopefully, hopefully they can uh, come through in a few years and hopefully we see a few more people from New Zealand pushing into that top 20. Well, nice to know we pushed your button today. You felt uh, obliged to ring up and talk about it. I'm glad you rang and uh, told us a little, gave us a little bit more of an insight into uh, the, the mindset, the screw loose of Paul Cole. Well, when next time I talk to him, well, I'll, I'll remind him of that, Todd, okay? And uh, he, he, might just, yeah, yeah. he might just remember who you are. Thanks so much for calling today, pal. Good mate. Thank you. There you go. 0800 150 811. That's 0800 150 811. If you've got any thoughts about Paul Cole being number one, the Black Caps, uh, well, shall we say, the summer of two halves when it comes to test cricket, get on the blow or text us on the Temper Bedpost text line 8833. This is SCNZ Mornings with McIver and for Smithy. All winter, he's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SCNZ. 929, Stephen McIver and for Smithy. Just a, a note, the Breakers, uh, the Breakers, uh, the Breakers lost to the Hawks last night, 102-87 in Hobart. They're without five players. Uh, Yanni Wetzel's got back spasms. Rob Lowe's obviously in the Philippines. It's good to see that the uh, Tall Blacks, 3-0, they go to the next phase of World Cup qualifying. Willie McDowell-White was out with the concussion protocols. Usamang Den with a wrist and Tom Abercrombie. We spoke to him on Extra Time the other night. It's still not back. It's just a bit of a pain in the bum. But they built a first-half lead, uh, 57-51, couldn't hold on. Uh, the third quarter, the Hawks outscored the Breakers 28-10. Uh, and it just got worse. And it just seems to be getting worse. Uh, Hugo Best and the best score of the team, 20.7 rebounds and three assists. But they are not going to be playing finals ball, I can tell you that. So the Breakers lose again. 102.87, just coming up to 9.30. After 9.30, we talk to Michelle Pickles about Dame Valerie Adams. Nine thirty-three. This is SNZ Mornings with Stephen McIver. Am I watching that Thor movie? That's out of that Thor movie, right? Thor Ragnarok. You know, when who is it? Kate Blanchett's the baddie. Hey, Logan, was she the baddie? What's the name of her baddie? Hella. That's that's when Hella comes to town. All right. Let's, let's get our focus back. Dame Valerie Adams called time on her storied career yesterday. She won Olympic gold in Beijing in 2008, London 2012, a silver at Rio, and then bronze in Tokyo last year. Adams is also a four-time world champ, four-time indoor world champ, three times Commonwealth Games champion at 37 years, uh, married to Gabriel and two beautiful children. It's time to be around them a bit more. Now, a lady that followed Val in professional capacity for many years is former News Hub reporter Michelle Pickles, uh, one of the good ones. And she's now working for Sport New Zealand. Hey, Pex, how are you? <laughs> Mr. McIver, it's been a while. Oh, I, I love the Mr, though. So, so our, <laughs> our respect still stands for each other, which is great. <laughs> what, what, what was your reaction to Val's announcement yesterday? Oh, gee. Um, 
Yeah, sadness, but I'm really happy for her because, you know, I know how tough the last um, few years have been. You know, I mean, I have been away from journalism for five years now, but I obviously have still followed her mm. and um, what she's been up to, and I know it's been really hard. Um, so sadness, um, but yeah, also happiness for her. And, you know, she has such an amazing story career, um, and I think what she's done um, for her sport and for her country and the contribution she's made is just outstanding and, um, you know, unparalleled, really. Okay, so now, are they, as they say in modern terms, we're going to unpack this from your perspective. <laughs> oh, when God, did you? I, f- <laughs> I know, me too. But actually, your boss, <laughs> your boss, used it with me the other night on extra time. She, we, we were talking about something. She said, "Steve, it's something we need to unpack." I said, "No, Raylene, it's not." But I'll, I'll put my feet up on the couch anyway. Uh, when did she's, you? She's one of the good ones. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, she is. When did you first come into contact with Val? Oh, gee. So uh, before the Beijing uh, Olympics, so 2008, and I have to, this is funny because I've never actually ever told Belle this, but I did an interview with her um, leading up into the Olympics and we were doing one-on-one interviews and she was one of my one-on-ones and I'd never interviewed her before and I was so nervous. I actually was packing myself or crapping myself as Valerie would say Mm. um, because you know, she, even back then, uh, she just had this massive standing in, in the sport and in the community, and she was just um, such an amazing athlete and uh, had sometimes been a little bit prickly with media back early mm-hmm. on in the piece. Yeah, and so I was kind of like, oh my goodness, you know, this is going to be really interesting. And she was just delightful. And I think, it, you know, that interview kind of turned into me covering her for nine years and um, just some amazing memories and moments and fantastic interviews and I just always found her so honest and um, she's so such a straight shooter, straight talker, you know, it always gives you an honest answer and I loved that about her as a journalist. I, I think Michelle and I, I'm in the same boat, I've interviewed Val a number of times but I think the one thing, if you really want to dig deep, you have to earn her trust, don't you? Yes, yes, absolutely, Stephen. That's really, it's a really good point. Um, Val, so one of one of the things that Val is is loyal, and um, she has a lot of people around her, and those people are the people that have taken the journey with her, and um, she, you know, she absolutely has to trust them, and you know, you'll know those people like, you know, obviously her family, but also. Lou and JP and all of the people that have helped her get to where she is today. Um, but you you do find as a journalist, and I found that as I kept interviewing her over the years and following her, you know, around the world really and, and covering a lot of her stories, our relationship got better and better and, and she did. I trusted her and she trusted me and it made such a massive difference and it always does. As a journalist, relationships are the most important thing, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, completely. Yeah, yeah, but did, did you ever feel compromised, though? Did you ever – there were a couple of times I knew stuff and you knew you couldn't say anything. Did you ever ever have moments like that that you can now share? Um, n- uh, not really. Oh, no, not really with Val. Um, look, there were things that, you know, I did stories on that I knew way before I did the story on, but I knew that I was going to do the story on them. So that was okay, and I, you would never, ever – um, compromise that situation as a journalist, you know, um, and if you're told something off the record, personally for me as a journalist, I would never ever publicly divulge that information because that's just not what you do. But um, yeah, no, not really. I can't, no, not, not that I can remember. 
when you talk about her life having been difficult over the last five years, how much has she changed from that character of 2008, if at all? Um, I think she's become more comfortable with who she is and in herself, um, not just as an athlete, but as a person. Um, well, give me an example. I, I, give, I, give me an example, Pix, of, of her not being comfortable with herself in the early days. I think, well, as I said earlier, I think originally she wasn't that comfortable with media and because she hadn't done a lot, right? So she became Olympic champion and then, you know, everyone wanted a piece of her. And I think the more you do something like that, the more you have to do interviews and interact with media, the better you get. And as you say, the more you start to trust the people that you're often doing interviews with. So, like, you know, personally, from my perspective, I... The interviews that I did with Val, I always enjoyed. She was one of the, my, my favourite athletes to interview because I had such a good relationship with her. Um, but I'm not, but I'm not sure what other journalists that you know, if, if they were going along as the first time they were interviewing Val, I personally don't think they would probably get the interview that you would get if you had the relationship with Val. Um, so it, it's very much about that relationship and that trust thing. And I think that she matured as an athlete and a person. Um, and also just became more relaxed, right? Because, I mean, some of the interviews that she does, she's very funny. She's absolutely hilarious and doesn't mind, you know, speaking your mind. And that, those are the best interviews. And I think that that became more and more. She just became more relaxed and realised that she could just be herself. And, well, and she was. And I think her interviews are amazing. Well, I, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, Tokyo last year, I was talking to her. I was in the studio at Sky Television in Wellington. She was in Tokyo. And uh, we, we always joke with each other. And I said, so um, uh, so okay. So when are you calling it quits? And she just looked me down the down the brow and went, you th- "What? You think you're special? You actually think you're special? And I'm going and I'm going to give you that? Forget it." So so do you do you have any of those moments? Can you remember an interview that really struck home with you? Oh gee, um, I, to be honest, it was probably not one of those moments. But the interview that I will always remember with Val was. Um, when she had found out she'd won gold in London when she was cheated out of it by yeah. Ofputchuk, yeah. um, the drug seat. And she had gone back to Switzerland. I was in London. We had just finished um, covering the Olympics. I had absolutely no voice. And uh, we found out that she had won gold. And my, the, my cameraman and I flew to Switzerland and did an interview with her for Campbell Live. And that was just, it was just amazing to see this person who, you know, had been through so much, obviously, at the London Olympics, not just kind of thinking she had gotten silver, but everything that had gone on beforehand. And just the pure joy of finding out finding out that she had won gold, but also I think the disappointment of realising she'd been robbed of that moment. Um, and that interview for me really stands out. It was just, um, yeah, it was just amazing to see her and all the, the emotion that was going through her. And she was just ecstatic, but kind of sad at the same time. Um, but yeah, that one in Switzerland. And then, <laughs> and then we thought we had like an hour to get to the, to the feed point and we, had, um, we were actually like an hour's drive away um, and we thought we were five minutes drive away and she told us, no, you're actually you're like an hour's drive away and we only just made it to ear. But it was one of those moments where you just go, oh, my God, I can't believe I got that interview for a start. And then we actually got it to ear. So, hey. <laughs> you, you talk about sort of excited and sad. Was there any anger at, at, at initially being robbed? Yes. Yes, I think so. Um well, wouldn't you be? <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, completely. <laughs> you know, particularly, particularly, you know, the and the way it happened. Um, yes, definitely. But you know, she 
she was quite philosophical about about it because at the end of the day it's happened and it's done and she's very outspoken about drugs cheap you know always has been always will be she's been the victim of it so that's understandable um but yeah i mean definitely anger but you know i think overriding was the fact that she had actually been vindicated and she got that gold medal so yeah i think it's a moment i think i saw her last night say that it's a you know she looks back now and it's it's a good story um, that she'll always tell. And, um, yeah, it's just one of those moments in her very story career. Yeah, Michelle, stay with me. I've just got a couple of other things I want to talk to you about, about Valerie Adams. It's 9.42 here on SENZ with the Smithy. Simon, is this a chat about Val with media navel-gazing? No, these are different stories about Val, and everybody has an opinion. But uh, thanks for yours on the Timber Bedpost text line, double eight double three. Summer or winter, he's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. 9.47 with Stephen McKay of Infa Smithy over the next couple of days, 0800 150 If you've got some thoughts on Val, I'd love to hear because she has made such an, a big impact on the sporting public. And how big do you think, Michelle Pickles, that impact has been? Oh, massive. On the sporting public or, I mean, on the sport, on our country, on everything. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's huge, really, isn't it? I, you look at... I mean, you just look at some of her stats, which have obviously been, um, you know, published and broadcast mm-hmm. over the over the last kind of 24 hours or 12 hours or whatever it's been. Um, but you know, I just kind of look at um, she won in Beijing with uh, 2056, and the winner Gong in Tokyo won with 2058. You know, so you just kind of look at. At, at, you know, and that was a her at her peak, and of course she won, came through to Tokyo and won bronze. But she was ahead of her time, right? You know, her best is twenty one, twenty four, and ridiculously, I think she's still like twenty third or twenty fourth on the all time list, which is crazy, you know, <laughs> because obviously she's behind probably a lot of um, people who were, you know, what. Um, but I just, I just think, you know, the streak, the fifty six elite um, competitions in a row. I just don't think. I think we'll struggle to see anyone like her, um, you know, in the future. To be honest, that has done what she has done in the sport, and also for her community and for the country. And I, you know, I just think she leaves an amazing legacy. Do you feel that her ability to adjust when she went through three coaches, and it was all amicable, Kirsten Helia, Jean-Pierre Eger, and the last one whose name is, uh, he's currently Tom Walsh's coach. Uh, do you think her ability to adjust and desire to keep learning is one of the reasons she stayed ahead? Yes. Um, yeah, I do. I think, you know, she's very astute, right? And so... I think that, you know, all of those changes in coaches, well, I mean, the, the, JP, the JP one was difficult, right? Because he was in Switzerland, yeah. she was here. She had spent a long time living in Switzerland away from family and I think realised that she obviously couldn't do that anymore with kids. Um, so that was one of the things that, I mean, I don't know, but I, I, I think maybe she probably would have stayed with JP if she could, but the logistics of that was just too hard. Um, but she was always learning and wanting to get better. And, I mean, you know, we've seen that in her. And, you know, I mean, some of those videos she used to put on, on social media of the training that she did, you know, even when she was pregnant, she just was always pushing herself beyond the realms of what I think most people would ever push themselves. And that was her just wanting to be the best um, and to be, you know, as good as she possibly could be. 
Is she a planner? Because now she has to plan for a life without routine. And as we have seen on many occasions, professional athletes struggle with normal life. Oh, look, I don't, I don't know. So it's interesting, Stephen, because uh, like I covered her as a journalist, but, you know, uh, we weren't friends. Well, we were pro- yeah. professional friends, but not as in personal friends, because you can't be as a journalist, I don't think, mm-hmm. um, because you never know when you're going to have to cover that story that's going to be difficult. So um, personally, look, I, I absolutely, I think as, a, as an elite athlete, you have to be a planner, right? You've got so many people around you and your high performance team around you, which are all, who are always planning for you to make sure that you're at your peak at the right time. So yes, I think every athlete has to be a planner. I think that Val... Um, I think that she will have a plan as to what she wants to do next. There's a movie being made about her, so I guess that's, you know, next she's going to be a movie star. (laughs) Um, But I think that she will definitely have a plan. But I think also, you know, having not been the elite athlete, I don't exactly know, but I think it is difficult, as you say, to transition. And I think she probably realises that. And there are also... um, there are people within high-performance sport that can help you with that, athlete life advisors that help you with those transitions as well. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of help and support around these athletes, um, but I would say she's definitely got a plan for what she wants to do. But I think right now she just wants to be with her kids and her husband and her family, and you know, she's still going to coach um, Lisa. Um, so you know, hopefully she can actually just enjoy it um, for the moment before kind of keep thinking about too much about what she wants to do next. Pretty, pretty cool that she can coach a sis, eh? Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. You know, watching her at the Paralympics and watching Lisa win gold, and she was just delighted. And that must be, it must be amazing to be able to give back, which is what Val has always wanted to do, is to give back to her sport and to her community and to her country. And I think that's what she's doing with Lisa, and I think it's just fantastic. So, you know, great if she can take Lisa through to Paris and, and win again. You know, what an amazing accomplishment. Michelle Pickles, it is always a pleasure to chat. It's been far too long. Uh, is Hubby still a petrol head like yourself? Yes. Okay. Hasn't, yes, he is. Haven't bought any more cars? <laughs> built any more cars? No. No. Oh, <laughs> that what? Is a big fat no. Oh, you don't want him to build any more cars? <laughs> well, oh, oh, look, that's a, that's a chat over a glass of wine, Stephen. All right. Okay, we'll leave it. Hey, Pics, really lovely talking to you. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on Val Adams, and uh, go well that's- at uh, Sport New Zealand. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Thanks, mate. Michelle Pickles, uh, her reflections as a journalist on the life and times of Valerie Adams. Dame Val, we'll talk to her first coach, Kirsten Hellier, after 11 today. Uh, just before we go to the break, Anthony just texted in on the Temper Bedhouse text line. Hey, Stephen, Val was just so immense at what she did for so long. An inspiration. Summer or winter, he's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. That's what Tyson Fury is singing right now. Let's dance. Let's dance, Dillian White, in April. Tyson Fury says he is, quote, supremely confident of defeating Dillian White uh, for their fight. It's in Vegas. And guess what? It's a $60 million packet. Fury's getting 80% and Dillian White's getting 20%. He was arguing about that for a long, long time. But interestingly enough, Frank Warren uh, beat out Eddie Hearn on the purse negotiations. Uh, I love I love Tyson Fury. He goes, uh, quote, I'm very, very confident. I'm not down to earth. I'm on top of it. There's not a 1% chance that I will lose this fight. I know I 
cannot lose. In the latter part of my career, I have to be supremely confident in my ability, which I am. If I'm daft enough to get hit by him, that I don't deserve to be heavyweight champion. And that follows on when he was, uh, he posted on his uh, Twitter page or his Instagram page the fact that, oh, I might just try and box him left handed. You know, I might just all with one hand tight behind my back. And he called him uh, Feather White. As a not featherweight, but feather white. So that is something I'm really looking forward to because as ungainly as Tyson Fury is as a boxer, he's an incredibly smart, smart man. And just to think David Nikia and our own Joseph Parker are in that same camp. You'd just love to get inside his head and understand what he is teaching them. So there you go. <laughs> Not 1% chance that I will lose the fight. Gotta love a quote. Karen's here with news next after 10. Sophie Devine. Five here on Mornings with Smithy. Stephen McIver in the house for the next couple of days. Smithy's on ICC Cricket Women's World Cup duty, and that is our focus right now. And if you think about what the White Ferns did to Australia yesterday, they are on rock and roll mode right now. Wow. I tell you what, it all starts Friday. The White Ferns against the West Indies at Bale. And just a reminder, all the White Ferns games, live ball-by-ball commentary right here on SENZ. And you'd be hard-pressed not to be confident after the White Ferns they punished Australia, the world's number one team in ODI, by nine wickets, chasing 321, scoring 325 for the loss of just the sole wicket. Captain Sophie Devine came to the party. 161 unbeaten of 117 balls. And we spoke to her last night, fresh off the Lincoln pitch, and I suggested to her that that was a heck of a statement win on the eve of the tournament. Yeah, oh look, certainly. I think it's um, it's nice to put a performance like that out in the out um, into the ether. I guess I think we were pretty disappointed with the performance against Pakistan, and I think we need to probably take it with a grain of salt. It is a warm up game, but we certainly want to, I guess, acknowledge the way that we played against. Yeah, as you say, the the world's best at the moment. Three hundred and twenty one's a hell of a target to chase down. Was was there any doubt in your mind as you guys took to the crease? Uh, no, not necessarily. I think that was probably one of the the real strengths of the chase was how calm we stayed. We knew that the wicket was flat. We knew, um, I guess, the outfield was true and you got real value for shots. So as long as we kept the run rate in check, which we managed to do um, throughout the whole chase, uh, we knew that we were in with a good shout, especially the way that our batters have been going about things, um, obviously, lately with the series against India. So so this result comes as no surprise, the way it was managed? Um. Oh, look, I think 320 is always a big score to knock off. I think, though, the, the way this group's been playing the, the last couple of weeks, I think the confidence has certainly grown over the last month or so. And, you know, absolutely, it's, it's a big achievement to, to knock off runs like that. But I, I certainly know that this group is capable of some really special things, and hopefully it can continue. At what point in the chase do you know you're in with a shout? Oh, look, I actually knew, um, I guess, the platform that me and Suze was able to... To put out there, you know, 
notching up the 100-run partnership and, and we knew that wickets and hand were going to be key. We saw the way that the Australians were able to, I guess, really put the foot down um, with the run rate throughout their innings. But we knew if, if we could get ourselves in that we were a real chance to to manage that run chase. And, and even when Sue's left, the way that Neely came in and batted, you know, it, it was a very smart and mature innings from her to, you know, take real calculated risks. And at the end of it, we, we probably didn't even feel like we really... Um, had to take too many risks. It was just smart cricket, which is something that's really pleasing. You talk about the group, and, and nowadays in teams, well, you must talk about the collective. You look at what's below the three of you who have performed already so beautifully in this match that's gone. Are you confident that you can bat deep? Oh, absolutely, and I think that's been proven over the last you know couple of weeks against India. We've seen Maddie Green, Brooke, Brooke Halliday. We saw, and unfortunately, Lauren Down isn't with us anymore, but... Katie Martin, you know, I could rattle off pretty much the whole team, um, which is something that's really exciting, and that's taken a lot of work that, you know, hasn't happened overnight. This has been two to three years in the making, is, is getting the depth and, and players confident and backing themselves in situations like this. So it's nice that it's starting to come together um, towards the crunch time. Okay, so let's have a little bit of introspection now. Sophie Devine, 161 of 117. Uh, how does that feel? How did it feel out there in the middle? Oh look, it was um, oh, it was just a, a real pleasure to to spend a bit of time out there. Obviously, I've been getting a bit jealous of watching everyone else um, <laughs> chew through the runs, and you know, being disappointed that I haven't been able to contribute more. But um, I actually had a talk with my site last night, and we probably use it as a bit of a reset and, and a focus on just my controllables, some really simple things that um, if I you know work hard on those, the outcome will look after itself. So it was a a very timely reminder for me of, of what's capable when I stay focused and disciplined. Yes, that's interesting you're saying you're having to talk to a psych. So how often would you uh, go to your psych and say, hey, I just need to make a few tweaks? Oh, look, I think um, I've got a really close relationship with my psych and it's probably been, you know, it's not always cricket talk. It, it can be sometimes just general life as well and I think it's really important for me to to have that, that person there, um, that support person there. So, you know, it could be once a week, it could be more. It just really depends on, I guess, how I'm feeling and, and how things are tracking. But, you know, I think that's a really good point for me is, is to be able to feel comfortable to go and speak to people like that. How important is rhythm in, in a match, uh, whether you're batting, bowling or fielding, and, and, and getting that vibe through the whole team? Yeah, look, it's probably a really interesting one in 50 over cricket because there's going to be some real momentum shifts and rhythm changes throughout the match and I think that's something that this group did really well today in, in, in the warm-up match was, you know, Australia came at us hard and they batted really well um, but we probably soaked up that pressure and, and the fact that we actually bowled them out, I thought, you know, they were probably on on cards to, you know, notching up 340, 350 with the way they were going at it. So to actually bowl them out um, and be chasing 320 is still a, a really competitive score but um, I think the group stuck at it really well and that's something that we've again, has been working really hard on is that, you know, staying calm under pressure and being able to soak up, you know, when, when teams come at us hard, because it's going to happen. It's cricket, it's, you know, it's bound to happen. So if we can stay really level, it's going to hold us in good stead moving through games. It's been a long time since New Zealand won their only women's ICC Cricket World Cup back in, let me just double-check the numbers, 2,000 by four runs against Australia. The rest have been owned by Australia and the defending champions, England. Having it at home, how much of a, a bonus do you feel that will be? Oh, look, I think there's certainly some massive advantages that we've spoken about as a group when you look at local conditions. The girls are really familiar with a lot of the venues that we've played at and, it, 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 you know, we've got the great opportunity where it's going to be someone's home game every game. Um, so we're really making sure we, we relish that opportunity. And, 
you know, with that comes a bit of pressure as well, and that's something that we've acknowledged as a group that there is going to be pressure and expectation of of this group to, to go deep into the tournament. But it, it goes back to us as focusing on our processes, and we know that if we're having fun and, and playing some good cricket, that the outcome will be sort itself out. Do you have to temper the excitement? Uh, yes and no. I think it's a hard one. You certainly want people to really enjoy it for what it is. It's certainly a World Cup at home doesn't come around that often. So we, we've really spoken at length um, as a group about savouring the moment and enjoying it because it's going to go so quickly and it's certainly something that, that we've been waiting for for a long time and, and you know we're really great for all the work that the New Zealand Cricket, the organising committee, the ICC, to, to finally have this tournament here, you know, in the midst of a, a pandemic. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. So, um, yeah, look, we're, we're certainly just going to really enjoy everything and, and, and ride the wave that, that is sure to be thrown at us. A final thought from you, Sophie. Windies at Bay Oval on Friday. What can we expect from the Windies? Oh, look, they're, they're a serious team. Um I guess that they're challenging because you never know what you're going to get. I mean, they could come out and blast 400 or, you know, they might not turn up. And that, that can be a really dangerous thing um, as an opposition. So we need to make sure, again, that it's pretty cliche, but we need to focus on ourselves and making sure that we're doing the little small things well that we've been doing brilliantly the last couple of weeks. Um, and I know if we, you know, focus our energy on ourselves, that, again, that outcome will take care of itself. But, look, West Indies are a great side and, and I'm looking forward to finally getting this tournament started. Well, so for you guys and gals, you've all made a big statement with beating the number one team. We wish you the best of luck and are genuinely right behind you. Awesome. Really appreciate the support. Sophie Devine, White Ferns a skipper, 161 of 117, talking to us last night. She was fresh off the oval and in a really good space too. Uh, after that... Uh, chat she had to have she needed food desperately just a reminder that here on SCNZ we'll have all the white fern matches live with ball by ball commentary let me just run you through the schedule for you here on SNZ. and by the way all the games are live on Sky Spot I'll give you the weekend in just a moment but if you want to follow all the white ferns matches here on SNZ, so the first one obviously uh, this Friday first ball at 2pm against the Windies at Bay Oval in Mount Monganui then it's Monday the 7th at 11am Against the newbies in the competition, this is their first ever Women's Cricket World Cup, Bangladesh. That's at the University Oval in Dunedin. Then the White Ferns face India on Thursday, the 10th of March at 2 o'clock. And that's at Seddon Park in Hamilton. That's a lovely spot, Seddon Park. It's it's almost like a, a country oval, but it's in the middle of a city if you can call Hamilton a city. Uh, son, oh, hey, I lived there for five years. Okay, I've got family in the Waikato. I can, I can give it a jab. Uh, Sunday, March 13th, 11am, they face the Australians. Uh, six-time world champions, that's right, because the English have won it four times, at the Basin Reserve in Wellington. Then we're back to Seddon Park to face South Africa on Thursday, March the 17th at 2. Uh, then England. Reigning world champs, Sunday, March 20. Lock that one in. And here's hoping by then the White Ferns have punted a few of these teams around parks. That's an 11 o'clock start. First ball at Eden Park in Auckland. And their final regular match will be Saturday, March 26, 11am against Pakistan at Hagley Oval in Christchurch. A little bit after 11 o'clock, we're going to talk to Andrew Nelson, the CEO of the uh, Cricketing World Cup for Women, uh, about some great news 
about ticketing. Now, just a reminder, this weekend, now, the, uh, of course, New Zealand women against the West Indies women, that's uh, Friday. You can watch it live on Sky Sport or hear our ball-by-ball commentary for all White Ferns games here on SENZ. Bangladesh is game two of 31. Uh, they face South Africa on Saturday. Uh, on Saturday also at two o'clock is the that what a what a way to start the tournament the champions against former champions Australia versus England what an absolute cracker for those two teams you you certainly figure out where you're at then won't you as Australia of course being the number one team and they'll be well they're a little bit I don't know if they'll be gun shy but they're a little bruised after being punted by nine wickets uh, by the White Ferns game four is on Sunday. And that's Pakistan against India. All right, so those are the first, those are the weekend games. New Zealand against the Windies. Saturday, it's Bangladesh, South Africa. Saturday, Australia, England. And then it's gone away from me because I pushed the wrong button. But there we go. That's what the weekend is like. Just go onto the uh, website. Um, just go onto the ICC website if you want to follow things around. So that's how it shakes down. It's coming up to 10.16, not too far away from the panel. Summer or winter, he's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Big talk, big opinions, the panel. 10.21 on SENZ, Mornings with Stephen McIver in for Smithy today and tomorrow he's on ICC Cricket World Cup duty. Of course, the White Ferns facing the Windies on Friday, ball-by-ball commentary live here on SENZ and of course all the matches live on Sky Sport as well. Well, we are on the mark today because it's Mark Watson and Mark Hinton. Mark Watson, good morning. Good morning to you, Stephen. And Mark Hinton out of stuff, how are you? Stephen. I'm very well, thank you. Yourself? Wow, look at you both firing from the hip front. We haven't even started talking about things. All right, I know that I know one subject that will wind Watson up, and I'm sure it'll wind you up too, Hinton, uh, is the Black Caps. So I, I suggested that their summer's been a bit of a, and I know, excuse the horrible cliche, it has been a bit of a season of two halves. You beat up on Bangladesh, you lose to Bangladesh, beat them up. You beat up on the Proteas, and then you lose to them. Uh, what do you make of this? Mark, you first. Yeah, look, I'm disappointed. Oh, oh, sorry. We're both Marks, aren't we? Oh, sorry. Watson first. Sorry, Mark Hinton. Watson. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, Steve, you you can just call me Watto. My wife calls me Lotto. Six balls on the bonus, baby. Um, (laughs) Oh, jeez. Off you go, Watto. Come on. (laughs) Okay. No, look, I'm, um, yeah, look, disappointing, I, I, I think to say. You don't expect this Black Cat team to lose at home. You don't expect them to drop a test to Bangladesh. Um, look, we're not going to win test matches until we start playing attacking spinners on a regular basis. Um, and why Ajit Patel is not on the side is beyond um, reckoning. Um, what you do, I think, is destabilise the side. You've had a guy just take 10 wickets in a test and suddenly he's dropped. Now, what sort of message do you send to the rest of your team here? We have to have an attacking spinner. Guys like um, Ravinda... A Russian Ravinda, uh, when you go back and you, you look at Mitchell Santner, they're defensive-type bowlers, and we've got to break this mentality. We've got to start developing attacking spinners and believe in it. Our attack was too one-dimensional. Clearly, uh, we're, clearly um, we're missing Kane Williamson. I, I think you've got to put some serious question marks. Um, when, you, when you look at this side, you've got to look at some serious question marks over Henry Nichols. I think he's a good player when... You know, the openers have done a good job, but if he's coming in and exposed to that new ball sort of after 10 or 15 overs, then I think he starts to look a little bit fickle. 
Um, and, and look, I just don't believe that we are the best test side in the world. I, I just genuinely don't believe it. Yes, we won the test championship, but I think we got there a little bit by default. Um, we beat India in England in June. We had two tests in the lead up to that. India didn't. I think those conditions are more conducive to us. And I think we just need to stand back and, and just have a look at what we are doing and maybe not necessarily believe all the hype. Okay, Mark Hinton. Well, I disagree. Um, the darlings of 2021 have well and truly come back to earth, haven't they? Um, there's been a couple of pretty average series, really, all things considered, in a row. So we've got a, 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 and at home where the Black Cats tend to be dominant, tend to produce their best cricket, and they've been up and down, haven't they, this summer? So, re- you know, really disappointing. Um, taking a, a step backwards, and, you know, I mean, they'll know that. And, you know, there's, I guess, reasons. Kane Williamson is always a, a big out, you know, in, for New Zealand at cricket. Um, when he's not there, there's just, it's, it's, it's just not quite the same, is it? And as what I touched on, the one-dimensional nature of the bowling, when it fires, you know, on a, on a bit of a wicket that's conducive, those seamers can do the business. But when you need something else, they were missing it, weren't they, in that test? Um, and, yeah, the uh, non-selection of A.G.S. Patel, um, certainly mystifying, given what he did in, in, uh, on, on those overseas conditions. So a big step backwards for the back caps. They've got to pull their socks up. Not good enough for a team, you know, that now we look at as a bit like the All Blacks, a team that we expect to perform. Not good enough. <laughs> wow. All right. OK, so I'm going to question you both on this one. I spoke to Gary Stead uh, well before these series started, and he said the reason for not picking AJS Patel were the pitches. They weren't suited to it, and he was comfortable with it. Uh, do, uh, do we not believe him now? Mark Hinton first. Oh, look- <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, I guess the comfort zone is to pick seamers in New Zealand conditions and, and, and you know, not, not rely on your spinners because of those uh, conditions. And, and that first test against the South Africans would have backed that up. But, it, but, you know, it's all about balance to me. And you look at the best attacks in the world, they've always got one spinner lurking. And no matter what conditions... Um, Australia in this prime always played Shane Warne. They pretty much, all, you know, they yeah. all India always play spinners regardless. You know, you go with a balance of attacks. You've got your seamers and you've got your spinners. Look, New Zealand conditions don't tend to be to encourage spinners and, and, and the rise of, of, of a cricketer like Ajis Patel almost comes contrary to, I guess, his, his environment. But uh, uh, for me, um, yeah, the easy call was to leave the spinner out the right call might have been to play him. What I? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm not one to be a coward wise after the fact, but we were having this discussion with Garth Galloway early in December, November, about the importance of developing attacking spinners in this country. You look at the best sides in the world, they've all got a world-class spinner, and they generally are played in most, most conditions. Occasionally, you might not play a spinner if you are playing, say, England in June, where conditions really aren't conducive at all. But look, I don't remember Daniel Fattori missing too many test matches here in New Zealand throughout his career, so I'm not sure how the pitches and the environment in New Zealand have changed that much from playing Daniel Vittori in a test match pretty much throughout the entire New Zealand summer to suddenly saying, hey, look, we don't need to play a spinner at all. Wow. See, do you think maybe just too conservative we need to change that whole philosophical approach to how we play test cricket? Yeah, I do think we are too conservative. I don't think we take enough risks and we've never had... 
we've never had a history of world-class spinners, have we? It's not something, you know, we've had the Hadleys, we've had those players that have left the legacy. And so we've tended to sort of, um, yeah, follow the norm. But look, we should be writing a book the rest of the world's reading, not reading the book. Mark Hinton? Oh, well, um, I think we've hammered this one home. I mean, would a spinner perhaps have made any difference in that second test? Possibly, probably not. But, you know, I, I think the principle's at stake here. And, um, um, you know, New Zealand perhaps could, uh, um, yeah, as what I suggested, be a bit more um, aggressive, a bit more, as we like to play our cricket, particularly our limited overs cricket, um, play it on the front foot, not on the back foot. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. No, I'm with you. Are you talking? Are you sitting in the toilet, Hinton? Because it sounds like you're sitting on the toilet. Are you? Are you on speaker or are you holding the phone? Uh, I'm on my. Um, if you're on earpods, e- change yeah, the earpods are poo, mate. Had had that trouble last night with Waitangi Corpu. Told him to take his earpods off. So if you don't wouldn't mind doing that, I would appreciate it. It's ten twenty eight. Just a couple of minutes before we have to take a break, lads. Just uh, quickly, but not disrespectfully, uh, Mark Hinton. Now that you've got your earpods out, what do you make of Paul Colbing World Number One? Yeah, fantastic news, isn't it? Um, um, and thoroughly deserved for mm. the boy from Greymouth. He's been hammering away. I thought he was unlucky, um, Stephen, not to win the Halberg, really, for what he'd achieved. I think it says a little bit about squash, and it's kind of it's kind of fall from grace <laughs> as a major sport, doesn't it? You know, or it says a lot about the Halberg voting. Oh well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's easy to take shots, but you know, you're comparing uh, <laughs> a lot of great achievements, and, and someone's got to make the calls, mate. Are you but, on? Uh, are you on the panel? I am on the panel. <laughs> you know, I, I hit, I hear a lot of criticism, but I don't hear any solutions. And, and at the end of the day, an, an award that honours uh, New Zealand's greatest sports people, I don't hear anybody suggesting um, that How to do it better. Have it. Yeah, yeah no. well, I've got a suggestion. I've got a, I've got a suggestion. The rowing eight over the cricket team. Um, uh, absolutely, I voted. I voted for the rowing eight. Well, I thought they should have won it. Um, but hey, you know, I've always said you're. An, I've voting. always said you're an intelligent man, Mark. <laughs> okay, yeah. you two, Mark. What's what? I'll get back to you after ten thirty about the Paul Cole thing. But nice call, by the way, on the rowing eight because that that, that seventy two weight from seventy two was a long, long time and it was well deserved. It's half past ten. Karen here with a news update. Then we're back to uh, Mark and Mark, the dog with a speech impediment. Talk to me, yeah. 10.33, talk to me, talk to me, big talk. Watto and Mark Hinton in the house today. So Watto, just before the break, we were talking about uh, the Paul Cole and the impact. What do you think of it? Oh, yeah, remarkable. Boy, what a tough sport aerobically squash is. Anybody that plays squash will just realise what is required. Uh, you know, I, I think um, Mark or yourself might have referred to squash sort of maybe having sort of died off. I don't think it has internationally. I think it's maybe no, died no, off. No, no, no one said it had died off. Well, they said that the, well, perhaps the interest wasn't there, but I think the interest is not there because we haven't had a, a genuine New Zealand point of view really sort of going back since... Ross Norman and Dame Susan DeVoy. Yes, there's been other um, former New Zealand women that have been sort of ranked number one in the world. But, yeah, look, I, I think this is remarkable. I think he's probably, um, yeah, I think he's the most underrated sportsman in New Zealand at the moment, and I think he deserves more media coverage, and hopefully he's now going to start to get that. In fairness, he has started to get it. Um, but, yeah, let's really celebrate this guy because it is an incredibly tough sport. Semi-final uh, later on this afternoon, that'll be live on Sky Sport against the number four, Tarek Moman, the guy who beat him in the 2019-2020 
uh, World Cup. Okay, let's just keep moving. Oh, I want to. I know it sounds feels a little crickety, lads, but uh, that Black Caps or White Ferns performance yesterday, I would think, and I said to Sophie Devine at ten o'clock this morning, it was a real statement. She agreed it was a statement win that they needed going forward. I'd like to know from you, Mark Hinton, where you think the White Ferns are going to end up in this Cricket World Cup, and you know who will they face in the final? I mean, what are you what are you thinking right now with them? Well, I think on, on home turf, uh, we've got to have an expectation or a, a, at, least, at the very least a hope that they'll make the final. Australia will be very t- tough to topple. I think they're six times um, a Women's Cricket World Cup yes, champion. Yes, correct, so, correct. Um, yeah, they'll be tough. Look, they're, you know, I think they're on a, on a run of, they've won 29 of their last 30 ODIs. Look, the numbers don't lie there, do they? They are clearly the best women's team on the planet and will be the team to beat in this in this World Cup. But if ever New Zealand's got a chance, you have to think it's this one and conditions that will be helpful and sort of circumstances as well, you know, with everything going on, being at home is going to be at least some help for them. And look, it just seems like it's a kind of a little bit of a generational team. I mean, let me just say a few of these names. Sophie Devine, Susie Bates, Amelia Kerr, Amy Sathaway. These these are names we know. These are names we are used to hearing. These are names we see producing on a regular basis. So um, you have to have hope that New Zealand um, uh, could at least make that final and give those Aussies a run for their money. And, you know, um, <laughs> if you're in the final, you're in with a show. So let's, let's go and get them behind them. But they'll need um, a bit of luck to beat those Aussies. I like the way you think. What about you, Watto? Oh, look, I think Australia will win it. I, I think Australia, when it comes to any form of cricket, you're always going to put them as the number one favourite, not just similar as putting the All Blacks at times when it comes to anything rugby. Uh, look, I'm not convinced. Um, I think we can semi-finals for sure, and I think that would be the minimum sort of pass mark for them. I just haven't seen enough consistency over from them over the last 12 months. Um, I don't think some of the players are fit enough, uh, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I hope I'm proven wrong when you list those four names that uh, Mark mentioned there. I, I guess it does sort of install a little bit of hope and, you know, we are playing at home. So maybe some of those sort of frailties that we've seen in England and Australia in recent times, um, you know, the home advantage maybe alleviates a few of them. But I'm not as convinced about it, to be perfectly honest. Where, where is your faith in the tournament mentality? Giving it at all for over a tournament period, what I what do you mean my faith? I'm just realistic. New Zealand women's cricket just haven't done enough to instill belief. It's like these people that will start the season believing the Warriors are going to go on and somehow oh, win. You no, have no, to no. earn that right. You have to earn that respect, Stephen, and they haven't done that in recent years. And so I'm not going to get swept up in nationalism. I'm just calling it as I see it. I hope they prove me wrong, but I cannot see them winning this tournament. Are you with them on this one, Mark? Uh, well, I think I just gave my views. But, yeah, OK. Uh, I think All right. I think they're a shot, but Aussie, Aussie, Australia are the team to beat, no doubt. All righty. All right, let's move on. Uh, the impact of Dame Val on this country in general and her achievements. What I will go to you first, because I know you love your athletics. Yeah, oh, look, remarkable. Um, big, big influence, particularly amongst the Pacific Island community, the Māori community, in terms of getting people active. Um, you know, let's be honest, um, shot put, it's one of the traditional sports at the Olympics. They build the stadium at the Olympics, the track and field, dominated historically by the Eastern Europeans. Here comes Dame Valerie Adams um, from Rotorua. And she says, hey, look, you, you know, you, you can do this. You can win on the biggest stage. And, um, you know, we started to see it with uh, Maddie Weshi, who finished sixth in Tokyo. I think she's part of that legacy of Dame Valerie Adams. I think the success 
um, that you've seen from Tom Walsh is seeing a fellow New Zealander going, hey, if she can do it, I can do it. And sometimes that's all you need. You know, two Olympic Games gold medals, a silver, a bronze, four world championships, four world indoor championships, three Commonwealth Games gold medals. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty good legacy, isn't it? And, and I'll always say that. It still just says, look, you know, there's a lot of cynicism around sport these days with drugs and stuff in sport. But it still says you can still do it legitimately. You can still be a statistical outlier. And you can come from any small town in New Zealand. As long as you've got the belief, the work ethic, you can still conquer the world stage. And I think that's the message she sent. Mark Hanson, I was thinking about this, and it actually came out of the words of Dame Val herself. She said, I don't want to just be remembered for throwing a steel ball. Yeah, and I, and, and I don't think she will be. She's a true icon, isn't she? Um, uh, Blaze the Trail is what I um, point, quite rightly pointed out for... Um, for her sport, um, you know, the success, the way she carried herself, the consistency. You know, did she, she went um, 107 uh, consecutive meets from 2006 to 2015 on a winning streak. Um, incredible. And, you know, you almost forget that because over the later stages of her career, she was, when she came back from having the babies and, and had a lot of injuries, she was a little bit fallible, and you know uh, those goals started to turn to other shades. But um, what a wonderful period that was for for her, and um, she steps. Uh, you know the most remarkable thing for me listening yesterday, Stephen, was at the age of 37 with those two lovely children cradled in her arms, and obviously you know entering a different stage of her life. She still found it so tough to step away from mm. the sport. She was in tears talking about it. The emotions were, you know, were there for all to see. She very nearly continued, she said, through to Birmingham. She, she took months to make the call and actually started training again, which says a lot about sports people, uh, the difficulty sports people have just saying, um, no more. this is the end for me, no more. Because as she said, this is all I've known. The shot put has been her life since the age of 14, more or less. And since she sort of started competing full-time from about the age of 17. So um, this is all she's known and she's entering a new stage. And look, she's going to be successful at whatever she does, isn't she? So um, I think all of New Zealand takes a bow to Dame Val. It's been a wonderful career. Yeah, no, when you, just listening to you talk about that fact, you know, of, of so hard to, to let it go, it reminds me that I honestly thought that was probably the same thing with Mahe Drysdale. You know, Mahi probably should have pulled the pin in, you know, a lot earlier than he did, but he just couldn't seem to let go. Would you Would you agree with me on that, gents? Watto? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think the hardest thing, you've got to remember for so long, this has also been your sense of self-worth. This has been your sovereignty. This is what pretty much defines you. It's exciting. Yes, the highs and the lows. And I think the biggest challenge for a lot of athletes in their part of their career is, will life ever be as exciting again in that next chapter of their life. Now, clearly, yes, you do find it through kids. You do find it through family. I get that. But I think that's the big challenge. Will life ever be as exciting in that next chapter? Is the most exciting part of my life now come to an end? And I think that's often where the head games are played. And I think that is the reason why often sport ends up becoming more of an addiction. And you're not necessarily, say, competing you're not necessarily training to compete. You end up, sometimes it goes the other way. You're competing so that you can keep training, so you can keep the lifestyle, so you can keep that, um, you know, that, that chemical release, that buzz, the adrenaline.
All right, lads, appreciate the time. Mark and Mark, I apologise for asking you the same question to start with. And Mark, Hinton, I was listening. I know on two occasions today you said, as I said before, Stephen, as if you weren't listening, I was listening, but I apologise. It's all good, mate. <laughs> Have a good day. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks, what I appreciate it. It's 10.42. This is SCNZ Mornings. Summer or winter, he's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SCNZ. The loveracing.nz update. Your home for everything thoroughbred racing. Visit loveracing.nz. Racing's biggest fan. Yeah, that sounds like a happy Tainer Waters this morning. 10.47. Morning, Tainer. Morning to you, Stephen. How's things? Uh, good, mate, but you know what I'm about racing, so what's going on around the traps, pal? Uh, there's plenty going on, as always. Uh, there's racing today at Hastings, Hawke's Bay, and there's eight races on the card, including the Little Avondale Group 2 Lowland Stakes, and i tell you what, it's got one of my favourite horses of all time. It's called uh, Self Obsession. Self Obsession? I, I, I thought there was a Self Assured everywhere was going on about. So Self Obsession's a better horse or a different type? Self uh, different horse, but Self Obsession <laughs> is is uh, an absolute dream horse. She's won her last three, and I tell you why I like her so much, Stephen. It's uh, because before she started racing, everyone sort of wrote her off and said that she was going to be quite slow, and then she's come out and absolutely uh, proved all the deniers wrong. So <laughs> she's uh, pretty short short odds today, and should be expecting to win. Self Obsession. What's the race again? It's called. Uh, it's race seven at uh, Hawke's Bay or Hastings. Yep. The Little Avondale Lowland Stakes Group Two, and uh, the last seven of eight runnings of the race, uh, it's usually the lead-in race to the Oaks, which is a Group One, in a couple of weeks' time. And the winner of this race today usually ends up going on to win that race, uh, the Group One race, in a couple of weeks' time. So, wow. if she wins this today, yeah, you could expect it to be probably about a dollar sixty. In the group by New Zealand Arts. What is another Tainer hot pick? Oh, okay, pressure's on. That's definitely uh, the one that I really like for sure. Uh, is self obsession. There's one in the in the third race that I don't actually mind as well, mm-hmm. and it's a horse called Ragamuffin. Now it's a uh, it's a three year old gelding by oh, an up to comer called Ballada. That's the sire of the horse, and it, its first couple starts, to be fair have been a little bit average, but it's going to be a horse that most people would have think uh, they've been they'll be looking at other horses here. So it's a little <laughs> sneaky at, at, at odds there. Ragamuffin number three and race three. All right, that's, that, that'll do me. I, nothing like having a bit of a hot tip, so we know where, where your money going. Tony, thanks as always for uh, checking in with us, bud. Hey, happy to help, Stephen. Have a lovely day. Yeah, you too, buddy. 10.50 here on SNZ. That's loveracing.nz. Do your home for everything of thoroughbred racing. We'll take a wee break, come back and see what's going on on the TAB Sportswise with Pip. This song's especially for Pip Morris from the TAB because she likes she likes funky music, don't you, Pip? I certainly do, Stephen. Good morning to you. <laughs> Good morning. Yes, we can catch the best of live racing down on the TAB app today. So on the sports book, what's hot today for you guys? 
It's today. Looking forward to the weekend. Super Rugby Pacific, of course. And once again, Stephen, Crusaders are the way that the market's really playing, of course, up against Moana Pacifica. And look, there's been a few $1,000 bets on the Crusaders to win by a heck of a lot. Two grand on the Crusaders to cover the 43.5 points. <laughs> wow. $1,000 on the Crusaders to cover it at 46.5. And also $1,000 on the Crusaders to win 51 plus at 250. To the point that the points start in that game opened up at 43.5 now out to 47.5 Oh, so uh, you'd just be hoping no one from Moana Pacifica is listening in on this one because that doesn't give them any chance of doing much but it is what it is uh, hey, Tell me about the Blues, you, have you got the Blues in front of you? I do, yep the Blues are sitting there at 157 the Chiefs at 230 and that's considering the way that obviously uh, the Hurricanes put pay to them in that last bit of the game over the weekend so so, well, hang on. But are you telling me? Are you telling me the Blues are the favourites against the Chiefs? They are. They are. And I am sitting here very surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they might be a little bit closer in the market. Yeah, Chiefs two thirty, Blues one fifty seven, mm-hmm. and then of course you can play into the winning team and margins. And we've got that multi around there again, so you can play the the winning team and margin if your team wins, but you get the incorrect margin. You can get a bonus bet back up to fifty dollars in your account there if you want to play uh, that option. Okay. So, okay. Have you got a, a, a big book on the Cricket World Cup? Uh, not in front of me, Stephen, I don't, but I can certainly ask about it. Oh, okay. I was just I was just intrigued to know if, if New Zealand have shortened a little bit after that win against Australia, who are the number one ODI team. Okay, well, we, we won't worry about that at the moment. What else you got for me? Uh, we have, of course, NBA as well today. Ah, yes. There's a basketball power plays available around the basketball. Uh, one of those being Steph Curry and Stephen Curry to make 10 plus 3 combined at $4. It's one of the favourite options there. Uh, the Boston Celtics, the Toronto Raptors, the LA Clippers and the Golden State Warriors all to score. And that's at around $7.50 to get a combined points there, 100 plus. So there's plenty of options to check out there. The biggest winning margin is around the Toronto Raptors. They're the favourites at fours, but the Boston Celtics at $5. So they're another good NBA Wednesday power plays instead of just going the head to head. Hey, just quickly, uh, to win the whole thing, where do the Grizzlies sit? Have you, can, you, can you quickly bring that up? What are they playing? <laughs> I'll bring it up in front of me and see what they are sitting on outright in futures. Yeah. They are. That's good. That's good. It's, it's, a, it's a work in progress. It's live radio. I love it. That's what I want to. I'm just pushing you a little That's bit harder. Fine. I was talking to someone about the Grizzlies yesterday. I was talking to Jeff Jeff Wilson, Goldie, and he, he didn't think they. They are $12. Oh, okay. So they're, 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 they're not. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They've got a little bit of work to do. All right, Pip. Thanks so much. And I'll find some uh, groovier music uh, tomorrow as well, okay? I'm looking forward to it. I was jigging to that one when it came on. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my girl. Thanks, Pip Morris from the TAB. Uh, don't forget to watch and bet live on your favourite sports and racing at thetab.co.nz. And please gamble responsibly. It is R18, not that sort of R18, though, all right? 10.58, almost time for Karen with news at 11 o'clock. Where did the last two hours go? My goodness, just a little note there. If you love your Major League Baseball, hmm, question mark. Putting the brakes on, there still may, MLB and the MLB Players Association uh, have moved the deadline for the new collective bargaining agreement. In other words, they can't agree on a new agreement, which means the March 31st opening day might be a lock. Well, the, the players have locked out since, since December the 2nd anyway. They might not be able to get to a March 31 opening day, so regular season games might not go ahead. Uh, they have, they've seemed to have had some movement. They've moved the minimum salary to 
675,000 US. Oh, and the bonus pool is 25 million. Uh, there's other things that they're trying to work on, but it seems to be uh, one of the sticking points. Is I think it's a bit like the salary cap. I think that's what I'm talking about. Uh, so they they wanted the threshold to 220, and someone wanted it to 245. Yada yada yada. In other words, the bosses don't want to pay a lot of money, even though. The average salary, if you take the big salaries and the little salaries, the average salary for a Major League Baseball player is a little over a million dollars. So it is what it is. But if you love your baseball, March 31 or probably be April 1, April full today in our our place, uh, it may not go ahead. So stick around. Coming your way after 11 o'clock this morning, Kirsten Hellier, the very first coach for Dame Valerie Adams. And we'll talk cricket with Andrew Nelson, of course, stumped by Stephen. Ooh, what a busy little hour coming your way after 11 here on SENZ Mornings. Behind the stumps to behind the mic, nothing gets past Smithy. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Eleven oh four on a Wednesday? Is it Wednesday or Tuesday? My goodness, it's a, it's Wednesday already. It's hump day. Oh, oh, Stephen McIver for Smithy today and tomorrow. Uh, earlier today, we celebrated Valerie Adams with a, a journalist, a former journalist, Michelle Pickles. Lovely, very good journalist, now works for Sport New Zealand. And her experiences with Dame Val over her career and following her around. Right now, we go right back to where it started with Dame Val, and that's her high school coach and the coach that took her to Olympic gold in 2008, and that's Kirsten Hellier. Morning, Kirsten. Are you there? Hello, Kirsten. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm good, thank you. Gosh, I thought I thought I'd lost you for a moment. Please, please. Oh, I did too. <laughs> All righty. Um, when did you first see Val? Uh, we, we're talking back uh, 1997, 16th of Sixteenth uh, of November, nineteen ninety-seven. Wow, that's from memory. You can even that's a, that's a very good memory. What were your first impressions? Uh, first impressions, um, oh, uh, very shy, um, amazing, uh, amazing um, physical, you know, physique, obviously, um, uh, pretty, pretty naturally athletic, uh, even even though she was, um, I guess, new into the athletic environment, you could see that she definitely had a sporting, um, sporting background and, and just the way her body moved, the way that she walked, uh, there was, yeah, there was obviously... Uh, something there. Um, not quite sure. I mean, we we sort of articulated as being as being it, the it factor, and and it was pretty clear that she had it right from day dot. Really. Where was this? Uh, Papakura Athletics was uh, where where we met. Um, Val had, Val had come down, and she'd sort of got acquainted with a few people, and then. Um, for whatever reason, she and I ended up um, connecting, and yeah, just sort of walking across the field with um, with uh, one of her teachers, and and yeah, that was that was my first first view, first impression. What was what was the the first conversation like about? Hey, I, I may well was there a conversation? Hey, maybe I can help you do something with this. Uh, look, to be honest, uh, gosh, it's, um, it's a wee while ago now. I can't quite recall what the initial conversation would be. Like, I mean, I just remember Val. She was very, she was very, very shy. Um, I suspect that probably most of the talking was done between between me and and um, 
and the teachers that she was with. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess at some point in time, I would have, I would have said, "Yep, come along and train." Um, I was, I was working with a big group of of athletes at the time out of uh, out of the County's Manic Athletics Club in Papakura, and and it was really well. Yeah, if you want to train, just come along and join in with the crew and. Give it a go. At, at what point did you realise the it girl was going to be the girl and you would need to spend time with her? Uh, you know, those things sort of eventuate pretty quickly. I mean, within within six months of, of um, you know, coming down to, to the athletic track, track and I guess taking on a more formalised training training program and stuff, um, you know, she was off representing New Zealand at the World Youth Champs, so uh, it didn't need... You know, you didn't need to be a rocket scientist to work out that she was, um, you know, she was quickly going to, um, you know, develop the capability of being a, a pretty special athlete. Um, but, you know, to be truthful at the time, Val could have chosen, you know, three of the four throwing disciplines. Um, Javelin was probably the one that she didn't, didn't quite connect with, but um, she was an exceptionally good hammer thrower, an exceptionally good discus thrower and an exceptionally good shot putter. So, um, it, it, and, and she continued to, you know, to play around with all of the events until she, she ultimately made the decision. Uh, and again, I'm just going by memory here. I'm, I'm sort of recalling it was probably around about 18 or 19 um, that, yeah, I'll give, I'll give a shot a go. But, you know, truthfully, she could, she could have chosen any of those other, other two disciplines and I would suspect that she would have been world-class in, in those as well. Was there any time afterwards, once she'd made the decision to do shot, that she said, "This is why I did it. This is why I love doing it." Uh, well, I guess the reason that she chose shot was because she preferred it over over the other throws. Uh, that would have, you know, I guess, that would have been my assumption. Um, it was, it was definitely, it was definitely her her choice, and I, I guess it's no different than. Than, than all of us, you know, if you if you if you're good at something, you tend to enjoy it a lot more. Um, you don't tend to, um, you know, pursue things that you're not enjoying. Uh, and and obviously she was excelling in it. So I guess you know those those things combined, it's um, um, I, I would assume as a recipe for a reason to stick with it. Good athletes or even great athletes always have a hunger to learn. Is that Val? Yeah, uh, yeah, she's yeah. I think she's always been quite um, inquisitive. I mean, obviously, with any with any um, athletes, you know, she goes you know through that novice to expert expert sort of stage. Um, you know, as a novice, you you require probably a little bit more guidance. But um, you know, she's a bright she's a bright girl, and and she cottoned onto things very very quickly and uh, was extremely coachable. Uh, which means that you know you 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 can sort of take on a, a different type of a coaching style. It doesn't have you know doesn't have to be that that sort of um, you know directive you know type of coaching. And and um, yeah, she, I think she she had a pretty good understanding of um, you know how her body moved and what what she needed to do and and the potential that she had to obviously you know do great things in in, in athletics. So um, yeah. Kirsten, sure I've, I've, no, no, no. Like I've always wondered, Kirsten, how comp- a how competitive was she, and how tough was she on herself if she didn't do what she thought was the right thing? Um, yeah, age, age, and, age and stage probably plays into that a little bit. Um, I, I think as she as she became. Um, you know, a more mature athlete, then that competitiveness uh, really started to kick in both um, in and out of competition and, you know, being being really sort of hard and competitive, um, 
within herself around you know the, you know training and what she was doing at training and and you know striving to obviously do the best that she could go you know, she could um you know incredibly incredibly good um incredibly strong work ethic so there was never any you know there was never any question around um you know her commitment to what she was doing and why she was doing it um but yeah i mean very competitive uh again you know when you when you when you're good at something, it's um, it's it's probably one of the one of the easier things to to establish is that competitive nature and and um, but you know having said that, it obviously took her a while to get to the top of the world stage and and and, and you could actually argue, well, you can argue that getting there is you know it's bloody hard, it's really hard to get to the top, but actually staying there is is even harder um, and that probably sums up her competitiveness right there and, and, and the fact that you know she stayed on the top for such a long time she hate losing uh she didn't like it um <laughs> yeah no she definitely didn't like it uh you know i guess it's, it's part and parcel of sport that um you know somebody comes first and somebody comes second uh i think Early, earlier on, there were probably ways that you could you could um, disguise losses as, as as more learning than losses. But as you get as you get older, and as you as you, you know that competitiveness really comes in, and, and and I guess the expectations of the public, and you know when you get on get get to that level, there is an assumption that well you know you're just going to stay there and you're going to continue to be the world's best. And like I said, that's that's exceptionally hard to do. Um, but she she did it really bloody well. To take her to championships and a gold medal as a coach, how satisfying was that? Yeah, extremely satisfying. Uh, the, you know, the fact that we we basically started as a um, you know as a green team. You know, the two of us. I I, I was a a javelin thrower, so shopot was certainly not my my expertise. Um, I. I'd, you know, started. I'd been coaching for a little while before Val and I met, so I'd started to, you know, already develop a, a real curiosity and and desire to learn around the other events. And uh, I guess you know, Val and I um, meeting up, it, it certainly um, uh, sped up that learning requirements because you know, as, as as quickly as as quickly as I was I was learning, um, you know, Val was obviously developing at such a rate that you, you really had to stay sort of on 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 top of things. So. Um, yeah, really satisfying because I know that I I had to push myself incredibly hard in order to you know to to keep up with Val and and, and where she was tracking and where she was going and and of course there was always lots of um, expert advice from lots of experts um, you know telling you that you either were or weren't doing the right thing so yeah it was um, yeah, but but very 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 satisfying. I find that fascinating that you actually weren't I I didn't know that Kirsten that you weren't actually a shot put specific coach so did did Val know that at the time that she was taking on a javelin coach. Uh, well, like I said, I had been coaching. I had been coaching for a few years, um, but um, I don't know. Again, I, I can't even. I can't even recall. I mean, she definitely knew that I was. She definitely knew I was a javelin thrower. Um, and I, you know, I, ironically, it's the one event that she probably didn't like most. So. Talk to me about your relationship with Val. What was that like? How important was it to have a relationship that worked? I don't. I don't think that there are many um, athletes and coaches that have extended periods of time together that don't uh, establish a reasonably close relationship. I mean, obviously, there's variability around what that looks like depending on the personalities of people. But um, 
you know, there was we had a lot of stuff in common. We, we had a lot of stuff that we didn't have in common as well. But, um, you know, we shared the same birthday, for example. So, you know, I remember that being a, a huge icebreaker um, at training one day when we were just, you know, in, in casual conversation, when's your birthday, 6th of October? Me too. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, you, we, 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 yeah, we had a close, close relationship and and um you know you so, me, so you had arguments degrees. right did you have arguments did you ever push back oh of course yeah of course yeah of course we did yeah okay that's, um again that's 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 a normal that's a normal sort of uh that's a normal sort of uh, eventuation of you know like again people that work together a lot and and in close proximity all the time of course you're going to have um disagreements and 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 rightly so because you know i as, as a coach i need i need to be challenged and as an athlete you know you know athletes need to be challenged sometimes too will we see her like again gosh uh you know um I, I live in the Bay of Plenty now, and and um, I'm driving along the streets often, and I see these um, amazing physiques of young men and women, and think to myself, um, yeah, yes, there is absolutely the potential because we, you know, we 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 just breed beautiful athletes down this, this end of the world, and there there is um, potential for. Um, uh, athletes uh, to be developed with the capability of Val. Now, would they be Val? Absolutely not. There's only ever going to be one, um, you know, Dame Valerie Adams. And um, but there are there there is the opportunity for you know for other athletes. And you know, Val Val mentioned this you know yesterday. She's she's quite happy to you know hand over the hand over the shot, so to speak. And and yeah, there's. We, we've got lots of talent here. It's just a matter of providing the facilities and the, and the coaches and the people. And, and um, yeah, I should I, I should have asked you this question when we were talking about relationships. But the, the parting, the parting of ways between the two of you, uh, it, it, it I think it was quoted as amicable, but was it sad? Oh, extremely sad. Yeah, of course it. Was. Yeah, yeah, of course it was. We never. Yeah, and it was a big big part of you know both of our lives. So um, yeah, of course it was. Um, Tears and and um, you know it's time to, to process emotions and feelings and um, but you know just because it's uh, the right decision that doesn't make it an easy decision. Yeah. So what's Kirsten Hellier doing now? Ah well, Kirsten Hellier is. I'm currently at the um, New Zealand Equestrian um, Centre, which is hanging out with a couple of uh, fellow female coaches, which is kind of cool. Um, I'm doing a number of things. Um, I'm working. I'm still working in athletics. I'm, I'm currently the um, High performance coaching manager for Athletics New Zealand. Um, I do quite a bit of mentoring for um, other coaches. I sit on a number of on number of boards and yeah, do yeah, lot, lot, lots of things. Um, sports still very much a big focus and and um, uh, an area of love and passion in my life. Well, that's good. No, I, I, I should I should say one thing that's important. Thank you. Thanks for being a part of uh, creating a little bit of history in the New Zealand sport and, and being a big part of Dame Val's early career and setting her on the right path. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Kirsten Hellier, first coach, high school coach to the gold medal in 2008. Kirsten Hellier, coach of Dame Valerie Adams. If you've still got some thoughts on that, you can get on the uh, temper bedpost text line, uh, 8833, or give me a call. Uh, 0800 150811 that's 0800 we can have a bit of a yak about that or anything that we've been talking about over the morning that's 0800 150811 or 8833 on the uh, Tampa Bedpost text line coming next uh, a little bit of good news for you if you love your cricket on SCNZ
are just like us There's a cold and lonely light that shines from you You wind up like the wreck you hide behind that mask you use And did you think this fool could never win? Well look at me, I'm coming back again I got a taste of love in a simple way And if you need to know while I'm still standing You just fade away Don't you know I'm still standing Better than I ever on SNZ Mornings with Stephen McIver in for Ian Smith for the next couple of days and I'm Still Standing will probably be the song that Andrea Nelson, the boss of the ICC Women's Cricket World Cup will be singing after it's all over because after a year of waiting we're only three to two days away from the start with the White Ferns against the Windies at Bay Oval and Andrea joins me right now. See, I told you I'd find some better music for you because I know you're a huge Millie Vanilli fan. Oh, look, mate, I've got a bone to pick with you after that one. I haven't lived it down. <laughs> well, I thought, well, that's why I thought maybe a bit of Elton John would suit you, right? Absolutely. Nothing can stop us on this tournament. We can overcome any hurdle and, uh, and make the most of what's going to be an incredible World Cup. Oh, my goodness. How many cliches did you throw in that one, in that one sentence? Look, let's... Everything's up for Millie Vanilli, mate. Everything's <laughs> up for <from> there. <laughs> hey, uh, you've got some good news, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've been working really hard to try and give as many Kiwis as possible the chance to get into the stadiums and see matches. Now, obviously, we had a lot to work through with the pods of 100, and it meant we had to pause our ticket sales for a while. And honestly, if you want to see how far women's sport has come, check my inbox of people complaining that they couldn't buy tickets to our tournament. So the great news is is that um, the first week is now on sale. Others will be coming on sale in the days ahead. We still have four matches where the demand is too big right now for us to have tickets on sale, and um, we're working on those. But over the uh, over the weeks ahead, people will be able to go and buy tickets. And after the White Ferns uh, uh, rolled Australia yesterday, it's shaping up to be a very interesting Oh, quarter. how excited were you after hearing that result? I was actually lucky enough to be there at Lincoln to see yep. Sophie's amazing innings. And, you know, look, it sets the World Cup on fire in a, in a nation when the home team does well. And I think... It wasn't a result many people were expecting, so a great way to kick off proceedings. So, okay, numbers numbers are, have increased. So when we look at it on the tally or hear the White Ferns commentary on SCNZ, what sort of numbers are we talking about at the venues that you can actually get in there? Yeah, look, it gets really complicated and boring, so I won't go into too much information. <laughs> but it used to be that we had to bring people in in groups of 100, and yep. it just... From a, from a public safety perspective, it makes more sense to spread people out. So we've got 10% of our venues and will be where we'll be starting, and that will be people, a chance for people to spread around. So at your likes of your Seddon Park, that's about 1,000 people. Um, okay. You know, so lots and lots of chances for people. There's tickets available for lots of the matches because we have to be, we've been off sale for a while. So I do encourage people, tickets.cricketworldcup.com. Oh, uh, that now, okay. Oh, sorry, carry on. Give me the prices. Give me the prices. Go again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, with fees, it's seventeen dollars for an adult and seven dollars for a kid. Okay. Can you buy like a season? Yeah, look, we originally did have venue packs where you could buy multiple tickets to the same venue, but with the capacity constraints, that was one of the things we can't continue with because you need to know whether people are coming or not. So, um, but those people have been given an offer to buy back in. So. Um, they are, you know, hopefully those, our loyal fans will be able to come along and enjoy the matches. How much of a difference has this made to your organisation moving forward in this tournament to see these limits come in and increase capacity marginally? 
Look, what I'd say is that we are just totally driven by putting on an event that will make New Zealanders proud and create a really good platform for these incredible athletes. And so every bit of good news we have just adds to the momentum. Um, you know, the excitement's really building, so we're, we're pumped about it, as you can probably tell, and mm. uh, can't wait to get down to Tauranga and see that first match. Hey, so because of the situation that we're living in this COVID world, uh, is there going to be any sort of opening ceremony? Yeah, there's a little bit of pre-match entertainment happening uh, with our official song, which is Girl Gang by Jim Wigmore. Um, that's happening in Tauranga. We're calling it the Beach Bonanza in the Bay. So if you've got tickets to that match, head down a bit early, just before the coin toss, there'll be a bit of song and dance. Uh, a year late, but you're finally there. How are you feeling right now? Yeah, look, it's just an incredible experience to be here on the ground. I'm in Christchurch. I've been to Lincoln and Rangiora to see a few warm-up matches. The team's in their uniforms, the... The staff working hard. It's got an amazing vibe about it. And, uh, you know, despite every obstacle we've faced, we're going to get through this and it's going to be an amazing, amazing finish in, in Christchurch in over a month. When we talk about staff, how many volunteers? Because you had a program for volunteers, didn't you? Yeah, there's about 700 volunteers across the country who are going to be kitted out in a delightful blue and green combo. Um, you'll be able to spot them at the venues, helping people out, showing them to their spaces and helping out with some of the public safety stuff as well. So we're really grateful that people around the country have, have opted in. Um, you know, there's been obviously, like every other workforce at the moment, there's people isolating and, uh, you yeah. know, all sorts. So we've got a few logistical challenges to work through, but uh, um, we've got enough people and it's going to be fantastic. From, from, from COVID protocol pers- uh, perspective, what do you want fans to know? Yeah, look, we're just encouraging people to behave the way they always would at a one-day cricket match. So head to the gra- head to a grassy patch, find your spot. You know, you do natural social distancing uh, in, in Kiwi cricket stadiums, don't you? So it should be a really safe environment. Um, we'll be encouraging people to scan in when they go and get their, their food and beverage. Um, you know, just the normal stuff you do on your daily life will be part of the experience for us. Okay, just one final thing from me. Have a listen to this just quite quickly. Come on, lads, here we go. This is just for you. You know who this is? <laughs> never heard of them, mate. Never heard of them. It's just for you. Just for you. A little bit of Millie Vanilli. Just because you Thanks, love them mate. so much. Andrea, best of luck, mate. I know how hard you work. Uh, I, I wish you a very successful tournament. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. <laughs> there you go. A little bit of Millie Vanilli for Andrea Nelson, a boss of the ICC Women's Cricket World Cup. Bang on 11.30. Here's Karen. Dumped by Stephen. So see if you can stump me or we can stump you. 0800 150811. That's 0800 If you've got any thoughts on what we've been doing today as well, uh, get on the Temper Bedpost text line on 8833 and just uh, let me know what you are thinking about. Uh, we, we are Look, we're all sort of thinking in the back of our, our minds what the hell is going on with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're all sort of crossing our fingers. That one settles down pretty quickly. Uh, but uh, just as, as an aside, Ukrainian athletes are expected to reach Beijing in time for the Winter Paralympics, uh, putting to rest concerns about their their participation. Uh, IPC President Andrew Parsons last week said the Ukrainian delegation faced a huge challenge to get to the Chinese capital before the start of the Games, which run from oh, this weekend, March 4th through to the 13th. And IPC spokesman said a full contingent of 20 athletes and nine guides would be travelling to Beijing but declined to share their whereabouts because of safety concerns, understandably. Uh, the athletes uh, should arrive as early as today. The IPC will decide the fate of the athletes from Russia and Belarus in a board meeting in Beijing today. Well, everybody else around the world is saying no to Russia, so uh, there you go. Uh, Ukraine won 
they won 22 medals at the Pyeongchang Games four years ago with all seven gold medals coming in cross-country skiing and biathlon, which are marvellous events having just come off uh, the Beijing Winter Olympics. Uh, I got quite into my biathlon. Cross-country skiing a little slow at the longer events, but the biathlon, when they have to slow down and come into the shooting range and they've got to be prone and then are standing, uh, they are fantastic athletes. It's 11.35. I think it's time to do something, isn't it, Logan? Ian Smith's had a good match here. Stumped by Smithy. Ian Smith really is top class at his job. It sure is time, Stephen McIver. It's been marvellous having you on the show today, mate, and great to have you again on tomorrow. Stumped by Stephen. Up for grabs. Stomped. Stomped. <laughs> Stomped. Stomped. Stomped by Stephen. Love We're, it. Yeah. <laughs> Up for grabs today is $50 worth of TAB vouchers and some sleep drops. Daytime Revive. Try New Zealand sleepdrops.co.nz for all ages, lifestyle stages, and sleeping challenges. Always read the label and take as directed. Sleep Drops Auckland. That is what you could win. That was a mouthful, but i got to say it. <laughs> Man, that sounded like you were just ready to do an ad and hop on the studio and put that one down. Yeah, baby. Let's go. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, joining us on the line now, uh, we have Ben from Christchurch. How you doing, mate? Not too bad, thank you. How are you? Yeah, doing good, man. Uh, really good to have you on. Are you ready? I am ready, yeah. Great. So you've got three sporting categories to choose from today. If you can answer all three questions correctly, then you win it all. But if you get a question wrong, then it's over to Stephen for a stumping chance. <laughs> Not a stomping, Ben. Don't worry, just a stumping. <laughs> so today's topics okay. are motorsport, rugby league, and golf. Take Woo-hoo! your pick, Ben. Oh, I've got to go rugby league. Yeah, <laughs> Rugby League. Rugby League. All right, here we go. Cue the music. Oh, I think this golf one is going to stick on the shelf for a little while. Who knows? All right, first question, Ben. Stacey Jones, the little general, he played 238 games for the Warriors before making the move to the UK Super League in 2006-07. Which team did he play for? Um... Was it the kettle in? Just a couple of chips down the wicket, right in the slot, and away it goes. That's right, the Catalan's Dragons. Hmm, okay. Good start, good start, Ben. Up for number two, the Redcliffe Dolphins, or just the Dolphins. It's the Dolphins, please. It's not the Redcliffe Dolphins, it's just the Dolphins. (laughs) They will enter the NRL next year, but the call has been going out for years for the return of the North Sydney Bears. I spent a bit of time there myself, and I definitely feel it. Uh, In what year did North Sydney play their last game of first-grade footy? Jesus. I don't think uh, he had anything to do with it. Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, no, 99. Just a couple of chips Whoa. down the wicket, right in the slot, oh, and away it goes. Well, that, mate, that was an out-and-out guess, right? That was a guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mate, I wouldn't have got it, actually. I would have, you would have got me there. Really? Yeah, no, yeah, I, 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 I was, I was thinking was 96, 97. Yeah. Are we Shane? Are we Shane? Hang on. Are we? Are you sure about that answer? Absolutely That's sure. That's their last oh, game of first grade. Yeah. I looked at it, and yesterday we had allegations of cheating. So oh. uh, I'm pretty sure Ben. Uh, I think you got that there pretty quickly. So not thinking you're doing that, mate. But uh, no, it was definitely. Are you sure? Yeah, 1999. First grade, like the Optus Cup, it was 96, and that became the Telstra Premiership. Hey, hey, sh- hey, 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 let's just keep it 99, eh? Yep. <laughs> North Queensland Cowboys. 
All right. Okay. So, sorry, Ben. Sorry. I'm just. I'm. I'm going to check it while you get this next question. <laughs> I'm trusting my sources here, uh, McIver. Last question, Ben. If you get it right, you get the fifty dollars TAB vouchers into your account and the sleep drops. Simon Mannering is a player that comes to mind for many when you think of the Warriors. He did captain the side from 2010 to 2016. How many total appearances did Mannering make for the club during his career? She was. You know, I know he played over 300. Um, oh, go. Oh, God. 3.15. One of the worst things I have ever seen done on a cricket field. I thought you were on a train there, Ben. You said you said 300. You're almost there. It's over to you, McIver. Can you do a stumping? <laughs> I don't think I can. Okay, so. We did 300. Oh, gosh. Um, all right, let me give this a nudge. Let's go 307. One of the worst things <laughs> I have ever seen does that, done on a cricket Does field. that mean Ben's still alive or? No. Well, he wins the $50. TAB vouchers. The sleep drop stays oh, on the, on the line for next week. Uh, <laughs> the correct answer was 301. Oh. So yeah, I knew he played 300. Oh, that's okay. Ben, you love your rugby league, do you? Oh, I love my rugby league, mate. Who's your team? Uh, Parramatta this year. Paying $11 if you want to get a wee... Hang on a minute. When you say (laughs) Parramatta this year, who was your team last year? Where's he gone? Are you there, Ben? Oh, Okay. So he said Parramatta this year. I wonder what his team was last year. Oh well, he's, well, he said they're paying they're paying eleven dollars. You still there, Ben? Yeah, I'll jump in here. I think it looks like we've uh, lost Ben. Okay. Uh, so Ben, <laughs> if you're li- still listening, mate, come back in. Talk to Brian on the phones, and he will get you details there. Get the uh, yeah, TAB yeah. vouchers into your account. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know about Parramatta myself. They always oh. come off hot. But well, I spoke to David Kidwell last. Uh, what was it last night? Yeah, I think the last night. No, night before last. And Kitty was. He was feeling good about it. Uh, there's a one word that Parramatta are using this year, uh, which is a big word too, and it's all about their identity. He, I, I called him out because he'd used it three times in the conversation I had, and he talked about the identity of the team, the identity of their team meaning uh, how they play, big, fast, hard, brash, and uh, I like the way they look. And, you, and again, you look at their forward pack, the Polos, Maratani Okores, Regan Campbell-Gillards, Dylan Brown in the halves. Uh, yes, they've lost Hayes Dunster from a trial match of the season-ending injury uh, from a, one of the Dragons players who got put on report for – and then you've got Clint Gutherson. Uh, I, I like the – I like. gee, he's noisy, isn't he? Isn't he noisy, Brian? Uh, I like the way they look. I think the team that we should be thinking about, though, could be the St. George Illawarra Dragons. Because, yep. because that those those fullback that fullback oh, I've got, I even forgot their names now. Who were we talking? Tyrell Sloan was one Ty- of them. Tyrell Sloan at fullback, and he hooking up with that little left winger. Uh, they look sharp, but Cody Ramsey. Cody Ramsey, thank you. Th- they look good, Ben. But uh, Ben, sorry, Logan. They look good, but I'm not so sure if everybody looks good at the start of the season. I mean, hell, uh, you know, he just told me to wrap up and go to break. I hadn't finished. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, all right, okay, fine. All right, okay. Well, Penrith got pumped, remember that. 36-0, so by Parramatta, just saying. 11.42. He's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ.
11.47 SENZ Mornings with Stephen McIver. Just keep that up a little bit because that's got one of the best intros of a song from the 80s. Uh, Phil Collins and Phil Bailey, Easy Lover. No, I'm not. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> it is such a cool song. Actually, speaking of cool, uh, on Thursday night, Race Control with Repco and myself and uh, Greg Murphy, Scott McLaughlin coming your way. We'll hear from Scotty McLaughlin after winning his maiden, maiden IndyCar win at St. Petersburg on Monday. Absolutely nailed it. Pole to win. So they call that lights to flag. So Scott McLaughlin coming your way on Thursday evening after 7 on Repco Race Control with myself and Greg Murphy. Alrighty, it's time for this week's Bailey's Rural Property of the Week. If you're ready for a change in 2022, keep an eye on the Bailey's Country Listings at baileys.co.nz forward slash country. Now, today's property is 488 Cleverly Road in Hunderley. Uh, is that Huntley or Hunderley? It's Hunderley, okay. Uh, situated in one of New Zealand's most spectacular and picturesque locations, the property enjoys uninterrupted panoramic ocean views combined with mountain vistas the Kaikouras to the north. 252 hectares, this one. It holds an A-grade ECAN environmental audit report with rolling hill country and stunning pockets of native bush, home to both fallow and red deer. The fertile irrigated flats are suitable for horticulture. Yum. And vegetable production. Yummy. Uh, the property is currently operating as a stud farm and beef fattening farm. Uh, previously, part of the property has been used as a thoroughbred horse breeding unit. In front of the stable complex are two separate accommodation units, providing views from the ocean to the Alps and an airstrip. Oh, wow. An airstrip in front of the accommodation complex completes the package. That is a package. Uh, this is the perfect combination of recreation, both from land and sea, along with agriculture and the possible potential for horticulture or veggies. It is a fantastic asset with both aesthetic and productive appeal. Properties of this nature in this locality are tightly held through the generations, so the offering of this outstanding property is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This stunning property is brought to the market by Ben Turner and Peter Foley of Bailey's Country. That easy, as simple as that. It's 11.50. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's, together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.